You're listening to Nitty Gritty Nursing with Nurse M, where she breaks down the nitty gritty basics of nursing concepts. Hello and welcome to Nitty Gritty Nursing with Nurse M. Today, let's talk about shock and the four different types of it. And we're going to walk through all of the different varieties, if you will, of shock that patients can suffer from. And to do this, let's I need to first start out by saying that shock is characterized by decreased tissue perfusion and impaired cellular metabolism. Because of this, it results in an imbalance between the supply and the demand of oxygen and nutrients to the body. Now, this makes sense because when the body has an imbalance between supply and demand of oxygen and nutrients, it's because there is not enough tissue perfusion, which leads to the impaired cellular metabolism. There are four types of shock that I'm going to discuss today. The four different classifications that you're likely to come across in nursing are going to be a hypovolemic shock, cardiogenic shock, obstructive shock, or distributive shock. And distributive shock is interesting because you're also likely to see it referenced as vasogenic shock. And I'm going to break down each one of these. So hypovolemic shock ultimately is the most common type of shock, and it's defined by a lack of internal body fluid (laughs) causing a hypovolemic status. So when we have that type of shock, we there's either not enough fluid inside the body like blood to be able to maintain appropriate cardiac output and perfuse all of the cells, or someone is so severely dehydrated, right, that again, their intracellular fluid and overall fluid volume and status is so low that they cannot maintain adequate perfusion. Now, cardiogenic shock is the result of the heart, the pump. Cardiogenic shock is, it's in the name, cardio, cardiac, the heart. It is a failure of the pump that results in decreased cardiac output. And where you're going to see this happen is in example, like a severe heart attack. If someone has a severe heart attack in their heart and a portion of their heart muscle dies because it was ischemic from the infarction and the heart starts to struggle because that piece of muscle in the heart is not adequately functioning, now the heart, the pump starts to fail. And when the pump starts to fail, it results in a lack of adequate pumping or systole to perfuse adequately. So that's cardiogenic shock. Now, obstructive shock is a type of shock that is caused by a physical obstruction that reduces the filling or outflow of blood from the heart that results in reduced cardiac output. Conditions that can contribute to this type of shock include things like cardiac tamponade, That makes sense because when someone has cardiac tamponade and that fluid sac is so full of fluid that the heart cannot expand to allow blood to come in to adequately pump, we have decreased cardiac output. Other things like tension pneumothorax. When someone has a pneumothorax that goes unaddressed and so much air is pushed inside that lung cavity and it starts to encroach and push against the heart, it prevents the heart from adequately expanding to allow blood to go in to pump appropriately and have normal cardiac output. So tension pneumothorax can also cause a type of obstructive shock. And then you've got things like abdominal compartment syndrome and pulmonary embolism, which is really one of the most... um easy ones to correlate with obstructive shock. Because if you have a pulmonary emboli stuck in your pulmonary artery, the blood cannot get to the lungs. And if it can't get to the lungs, it cannot get back to the heart and your cardiac output is absolutely garbage. So that's obstructive shock. 
And then you've got distributive or vasogenic shock, depending on which sort of book that you're reading reading about with it. And this particular type of shock is vasculature is dilated. And when the vasculature becomes dilated, it makes it really difficult for the heart to move blood and fluid to the rest of the body. That makes sense because as your veins and your all of your vessels dilate, the overall fluid volume drops. In cases where you're likely to see this, it's going to be things like septic shock. When you have an entire distributive kind of vasodilation that's occurring. Anaphylactic shock is another big distributive or vasogenic shock. And then neurogenic shock is the third potential cause that could result from that occurring. And that neurogenic shock is the altered smooth muscle tone that regulates the nervous system. Um, and because of that injury, it, you know, vasodilates. So those are the four different classifications of shocks. Hypovolemic, not enough fluid. Either you've got too much on the outside or not enough on the inside or both, because that makes sense. Cardiogenic, your pump. Physically, your heart, there is something wrong with your heart that is preventing it from being able to adequately pump. Obstructive is when there's a physical obstruction preventing the heart from doing its job like a pulmonary embolism, tension pneumothorax, or cardiac tamponade. And then you've got your distributive shock or that vasogenic shock, which is this massive vasodilation that's occurring, making it hard for the heart to adequately pump. And you're going to see that in things like anaphylaxis and sepsis and even a neurogenic shock. So those are the four types of shock. Now, I'm going to pause and spend just a hot minute talking about that distributive or vasodilation that's occurring in sepsis or anaphylaxis or in that neurogenic shock because it's a unique one, right? With the sepsis, there's a massive infection inside the entire body that's leading, of course, to what we classify as sepsis. And as a result, with the release of the endotoxins from the bacteria, that is what is causing the vasodilation and the blood to pool. Versus an anaphylactic shock, which is an allergic reaction to something, some sort of drug or food or maybe some sort of um, animal or insect bite that leads to this. And that results in acute and life-threatening hypersensitivity. Um, really, when we talk about anaphylactic shock, the Im immediate reaction causes massive vasodilation and releases of vasoactive mediators, which then increase in capillary permeability, causing sort of that um, vasculature dilation. In neurogenic shock, this is actually a phenomenon that occurs after spinal cord injuries, and the injury results in massive vasodilation without compensation as a consequence of the loss of the spinal nervous system, vasoconstrictor tone. So that's what leads to that um, vasodilation of the vasculature in neurogenic shock. Now, anytime someone experiences one of these types of shock, we always worry about one of the four stages that they'll go into. There's four stages of shock. There's stage one, which is classified as initial shock. And that in that initial phase, that's when the body really starts to experience the lack of perfusion. And well, lack of perfusion means less oxygen to the cells. So the transition from aerobic to anaerobic metabolism increases, which means that lactic acid builds up and the cells are experiencing hypoxia. Now, the patients in this initial phase may not have outward signs of being in shock, but they'll have subtle signs and symptoms. And when they do have those subtle signs and symptoms, it can be things like a slight increase in diastolic pressure 
and the systolic will decrease slightly because the height's trying to compensate. We're going to see a slight increase in heart rate. We might see a slight increase in respiratory rate because the brain recognizes that there are cells in the body experiencing some form of hypoxia and tries to increase the blood flow and the pressures. The baseline mean arterial pressure may also decrease by less than 10 millimeters of mercury. So when you're looking at the map, you might see if someone initially had a map of 80, right? You might see a decrease down to 71 in these initial stages. And if you were to do a lactate, they will have a normal serum lactate, which is normally less than one millimoles per liter. So that is the initial stage of shock. You might also see them have the beginnings of restlessness and maybe their skin will will be on the initial stages of looking cool and pale. And they might have some small degree of agitation, again, because they have a lack of perfusion overall. Now, if we don't do anything in the initial stage of shock, we will then transfer into the second stage of shock, which is called the compensatory stage. And the key point in the compensatory stage is that the body tries to come to the rescue with a biochemical, neural, and hormonal team that fights the effects of anaerobic metabolism. And when they do this, it actually increases the blood pressure and increases cardiac output because the body senses that there's a drop in the blood pressure and cardiac output, which is leading to that decreased perfusion. So when those baroreceptors sense that drop, it stimulates the sympathetic nervous system, that fight or flight response to release epinephrine and norepi, which lead to vasoconstriction, thus increasing blood pressure and heart rate. Yes, the body's doing its job. We get perfusion to the vital organs and blood then is also shunted away from non-vital organs. So in a stage of shock that someone's going through, if they hit the initial phase, enter the compensatory phase where the body tries to rescue it, not only do we release right the hormones that increase the vasoconstriction, but then your body's very smart and it will shunt, it will start to shunt blood away from your non-vital organs like your GI tract. You don't need to be metabolizing your food in that rest and digest phase when you are in a shock phase. You need to save the essential organs first, which are going to be heart, brain, and when in this stage, right, we, if we can catch patients in this stage, which normally we do, this stage is reversible. So when we see them in this stage, if we treat them appropriately based on whatever the cause is, we can reverse individuals from the compensatory stage and pull them out of a shock stage. Now, in this one, because, for example, right, there's a, the body senses that drop in blood pressure and cardiac output, the kidneys in this phase, they have that decreased perfusion. So because the kidneys have the decreased perfusion, they will activate the renin-angiotensin system, causing vasoconstriction, angiotensin 1 to angiotensin 2. And with that vasoconstriction of arterial and the venous system, it helps us out and it leads to increased cardiac output. Now, your adrenal cortex is sense the angiotensin 2, and they the adrenals know that there's a problem. So then they will release aldosterone to keep in sodium and water, which helps to increase you know that intervascular blood volume. And the high sodium in the blood triggers the posterior pituitary to then release antidiuretic hormone to keep in more fluid as well. 
So the gut, the skins, and the lungs are affected by that decreased perfusion. Because of this, in your GI system, for example, it works slower, there's less blood flow. So patients who enter the shock in this compensatory phase, and we know that fluid or the blood flow to the GI is decreased in perfusion, they're now at risk for like a paralytic ileus. Their skin, this is where we're really going to start to see that cool, moist, pale individuals. The only exception is in sepsis and patients who are in sepsis, septic shock, and they have that massive vasodilation are likely to actually appear hot and flushed on their skin because of the vasodilation that's occurring. Now, the lungs, because the perfusion might be a little bit decreased there, that means that there's decreased oxygen exchange. So we have a VQ mismatch, which then increases the respiratory rate for hyperventilation to try to get more oxygen in. Neurologically, patients in this compensatory phase may, they might be alert and oriented and totally fine, but they may also be confused, restless, or anxious because of the overall decreased perfusion. The cardiovascular system with that fight or flight response, the epi and the norepi that gets produced will increase that heart rate. And we know that that increased heart rate might be an initial sign, right? The blood pressure may be normal or they may have that initial decrease in the blood pressure, but is restored with that comp compensation. Uh, from that respiratory stance, they're going to have that increased rate. The GI system also likely to be hypoactive. And from a kidney system, right, because the kidneys have just been stressed with a lack of perfusion and they go in, they enter into that renin-aldosterone business, we're likely to see decreased urine output because the body is trying to hold on to all of the fluid that is necessary. Now, Ultimately, in stage two, in this compensatory stage, cardiac output is less than four to six liters per minute. And that systolic pressure, systolic blood pressure, is normally less than 100 millimeters per mercury. And then there's, you know, got that decreased urinary output, the confusion, um, because the cerebral perfusion is less. So stage two of the compensatory system is really where the body tries to fix whatever is happening when ultimately it might not be something internally that the body has done to itself and that we as healthcare providers would have to address. Because if we don't hit it into in stage two, in that compensatory stage where we are trying to compensate for the overall lack of cardiac output and perfusion, then we progress into the progressive stage, stage three, which is progressive stage. And this is when the body systems will start to fail. Okay, it starts to fail because this is where we start to progress to multi-organ um, dysfunction or death. And the key point here in the progressive stage is that there's the, compens the compensatory stage that we were in is no longer working. And because it's no longer working, we get a drop in cardiac output, which causes a drop in tissue perfusion, which is a decrease of oxygen to cells that need them causing a hypoxic injury of those cells, leading ultimately to increased capillary permeability. And so when this happened, the floodgates just open from an intravascular to an interstitial space, and it pulls that fluid and the proteins, causing overall loss of blood volume and basically massive edema to occur. And this is often characterized by decreased cellular perfusion and some sort of altered capillary permeability. Now, the mean arterial pressure, which we use to identify whether or not someone is adequately perfusing, and the formula by which you calculate this is you take your diastolic blood pressure number, you multiply it by two, add it to your systolic 
blood pressure, and then you divide that number by three. Okay, so in stage three, which is the progressive stage, we start to see edema, excessively low blood pressure, dysrhythmias, and then really weak and thready pulses because we've just lost our ability to compensate. We are now no longer compensating. Because we're no longer compensating, if you just think about it this way, like from a neurological standpoint, if we are not perfusing the brain and we have like decreased cerebral perfusion pressures, what do you think the patient's going to look like? They're going to have major neuro changes, really slowed speech, confusion. You thought maybe they were a little bit agitated and restless in, in the initial stage one. Now they're super agitated and restless and they have really decreased reaction times because the brain needs blood in order to adequately function. And if it's not being perfused, this is what we see. From a heart perspective, right? The heart is the pump, which is pumping the blood everywhere. But the heart also has to be fed with blood in order to work. It is a muscle in and of itself. And because the heart cells are not being perfused, they will start to die. They will become hypoxic and then these cells start to die. Uh Uh-oh, because that's really bad. And it can then lead to dysrhythmias like a ventricular fibrillation or ventricular tachycardia. This is in the progressive progressive stage, stage three. This In this stage, you need really fast treatment to occur. Otherwise, we end up in stage four, and that's really, really bad. From the lung standpoint, in the progressive stage three, you we talked about that increase in capillary permeability that's occurring. And because of that, now these patients are at risk for the development of acute respiratory distress syndrome, or ARDS, Because the alveoli sac increases in that permeability and they collapse full of fluid. So when you go to listen to them, logic serves that you're going to hear the crackles. They will have an increased respiratory rate because the brain is trying to get more oxygen in, but it cannot because of the fluid levels of the capillary permeability, just pulling it all in. And they will have decreased oxygen levels, which ultimately leads them to respiratory failure. If we think about our kidneys, which were really a key component in the compensatory phase of trying to hold on to water with those adrenals, right? The functional units start to quit, start to quit. They stop working. And because of this, these patients will end up with acute tubular necrosis, which leads to renal failure. That decreased output, they'll have an increase in their BUN and creatinine levels and ultimately in waste products because of the hypoperfusion to these kidneys. In the intestines, right, we knew that the intestines were kind of getting the shaft anyway, because it's not a key organ that we need to be making sure is working all the time. But it was hypoactive because there was a lack of perfusion and these patients were at risk for a paralytic ileus. Now, when we hit the progressive stage, stage three, they lose their protective chemicals because of that lack of perfusion. Fusion. And what that means is bye-bye bicarb, which leads to, if you don't have the bicarb, which is that protective layer, this can lead these patients to GI bleeds and ulcers, which they really don't need on top of their lack of ability for perfusion. And in the liver, when the liver doesn't have enough adequate perfusion, it, they can, it cannot filter waste. It cannot help with bacteria or creating the clotting factor that we need. It will e- increase it's ammonia and bilirubin buildup, and we will start to see effectively metabolic acidosis occurring. Even potassium goes up. So the progressive stage, stage three of shock, is critical because if we don't, if we don't take care of it, 
they then end up in the refractory phase of shock, which is stage four. And this stage is unresponsive to vasopressors. So when we have these patients in compensatory or progressive stage, stage two or stage three, we can give them, you know, exogenous vasopressors. Like we can start someone on norepi to try to increase the cardiac output and the perfusion to the cells. But when they hit stage four, which is the refractory stage, this is the point at which they become unmanageable. Because they are unresponsive to vasopressors. There is profound, profound hypotension that's occurring. And because of this, the heart rate now starts to slow down and multiple organ failure occurs. And most often, clients who end up in the refractory phase of shock will not survive. This stage cannot be reversed. This is what leads ultimately to death all the organs shut down and everything that happened in the progressive stage gets way worse, way worse. So that decrease in cerebral perfusion, respiratory drive, renal function and heart function, boom, gets exponentially worse. And they increase in the waste, they increase in waste buildup and it just builds up, builds up, builds up. So from a neurological standpoint, when someone hits the refractory stage, right? It's an unmanageable stage. They become unresponsive. Their pupils will become fixed and dilated. They're from a cardiovascular status. They will have profound hypotension, bradycardia, and they we have to put them on mechanical and drug support in order to just keep things taken along. From a respiratory standpoint, they will be in respiratory failure with no measurable oxygen saturation, and they will have to be on a ventilator. Their gut will become ischemic and start to die. Their renal system shuts down completely. The hepatic system, we just are building up waste product at this point. From a hemodynamic status, these patients often then go into disseminated intravascular coagulation or or the coagulopathy. They become hypothermic. Their skin becomes mottled and cyanotic. And this metabolic acidosis is severe. Now, multiple organ dysfunction syndrome, or MODS, M-O-D-S, is when there's a failure of two or more organ systems and is a direct consequence of the inability to maintain end organ perfusion and oxygenation that results ultimately in the injury and organ failure. And this is often caused by illness, injury, or infections that trigger that unregulated systemic inflammatory response also called SIRS, which results in tissue injury. We see this often in sepsis. And septic shock is one of those uh, distributive or vasogenic shocks that we talked about, where it's a little bit different in terms of kind of how they look and what their skin won't necessarily be cool and clammy early on, but, you know, warm and flushed because of that vasodilation. So those are the stages of shock. Now, the way that we diagnose people who are in these stages of shock is really through a thorough history and physical examination. And then we will do lab work and imaging, but no single study will actually determine that someone is in shock. That said, the blood tests that we're likely to do is we will do arterial blood gases because we're looking to see if they are acidotic or alkalotic. We might, we will do, it's not we might, of course, we will do a complete blood count or a CBC because we're looking to see what the red blood cells and white blood cells are doing um, and where their levels are. They'll also get some sort of complete metabolic panel or a CMP or basic metabolic panel, which is that BMP, because we really want to know what the kidney, what the liver, what the electrolytes are doing. And they might also, they will get also 
they will also get a lactate level, which is used to measure the amount of lactic acidosis that has built up. These patients also, of course, get 12 lead EKGs because we want to know what the heart is doing in its rhythms. They're also on continuous heart monitoring while they're in hospital. They're likely to get a chest x-ray so that we can see or at least have a baseline of what their lungs do look like. And then we do use hemodynamic monitoring tools to keep a very close eye on what their blood pressure is doing. And the way that we do that is either through a central venous pressure catheter or a pulmonary artery pressure catheter. The CVP or the central venous pressure catheter is we put that in and it measures the blood, the, the blood pressure in the vena cava near the right atrium of the heart. So we drop in this catheter, whether it's in the neck or the subclavian, and we deposit the catheter right above the right atrium of the heart. And it reflects the amount of blood returning to the heart, um, which gives us an accurate volume status. The pulmonary artery pressure catheter that we might use is where we put the catheter in the pulmonary artery. So think about that one there and where the pulmonary arteries are located. So we actually drop a catheter. It's still classified as like a central venous catheter um, because we're dropping the catheter in through the right atrium, in through the right ventricle, through the pulmonary valve, and we're putting it into measure the pulmonary artery pressures in the, that, those pulmonary arteries. We can then also do a pulmonary capillary wedge pressure, which is a PCWP. And the pulmonary wedge pressure... Um, is a cross-sectional pressure, and it's measured by wedging a pulmonary catheter with an inflated balloon into a small pulmonary arterial branch, and it estimates the left atrial pressures, which is reflective of left ventricular and diastolic pressure. All of this is super complicated. Really, I think the basic premise of what you would need to know, unless you go on to be a really intense ICU nurse who is working with CVPs or pulmonary wedge catheters all the time, is that part of the invasive hemodynamic monitoring we, that we do is we essentially put in a central line that sits either right above the right atrium or inside a pulmonary artery. And we are measuring the amount of blood that is coming back to the heart or the pressures to help determine a really accurate um, volume status. Okay, that's basically that for uh, invasive hemodynamic monitor monitoring. So those are the four main types of shock hypovolemic, cardiogenic, vasogenic, and obstructive. And those are the four big stages of shock. Stage one, which is the initial. Stage two, which is compensatory. Stage three, which is progressive. And stage four, which is refractory, aka it ends up in death. And that's all that I've got today for this particular episode of Nitty Gritty Nursing with Nurse M. Go forth and keep on learning.